Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, brothers and sisters, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. We are nearing the end of our walk through 1 Samuel. As the, the, the chapters uh, come to the end and the story sort of winds down a bit, we start to see uh, the, the upswing of, of David and his kingdom and the final stages of Saul's downfall. And in fact, today's passage could be considered sort of Uh, the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Saul's uh, kingship. Now, we know that a long time ago, back in chapter 15, that God rejected Saul as king. By the word of the prophet Samuel, because of your disobedience, the kingdom is removed from you and given to a neighbor who is better than you. We learn shortly after thereafter that that neighbor is David, uh, but he wasn't named at the time. But Saul, nevertheless, has been clinging to his power and to his throne and fighting to to stay in charge and uh, uh, enraged with jealousy and envy of David and obviously on this murderous uh, path trying to find and kill David at all costs. So that has been going on now for uh, about uh, 10 chapters, maybe even a little bit longer than that. And so today we see uh, Saul plummet perhaps as far as he can possibly plummet before the Lord simply has enough uh, and time runs out for Saul. So just a a little bit of a context as a reminder of where we were last week. We saw David really kind of succumbing, we think, to to the fear of man and, and worldly wisdom and strategizing to go and ally himself with the Philistines. And so David went and lived in Gath with, uh, with the Philistines, who were the strongest enemy of God's people at this time. Uh, so David and his 600 men and their families and all their belongings, they camped out in a town in the country uh, called Ziklag that, Gath, uh, that uh, Achish, the king of Gath, gave to him. And so there they were. And he had been pretending along the way uh, to be serving uh, Achish and the Philistine people by raiding uh, villages and people that belonged to Israel or who were at least friends and allies of Israel. So he would bring spoils of these raids to Achish and Achish would say, where did you get those? And he'd say, I attacked you know, some Benjaminites or whatever, some people that were connected to Israel. And so Achish believes that David is completely defected from Israel and is now totally loyal to the Philistine army. But the truth is that he was really raiding the enemies of Israel, Amalekites and, and some others that were named last week, the, the Gezi, Gerzites and Gesherites or something, some of those weird names. We don't know much about those groups except that they were Canaanites. They'd been there a really long time uh, and were, were pagans. So David has allied himself with the Philistines to such a degree that Achish enlists David and his men now to fight with the Philistine armies against Israel. And so the story last week ended in the first two verses of chapter 28 with with Achish saying, 
Now come along. We're going to go fight the Philistines, you're going to, or the, the Israelites, and you're coming with me. And David said, very well, you will see what your servant can do, which is kind of a non-committal answer. But Achish takes it to be a strong uh, uh, pledge of support to the Philistine cause. And so he says he'll make him his bodyguard for life. So that, that story picks up in chapter 29 with the question of how is David going to get out of this dilemma where he's now allied himself with the Philistines and is being asked to fight against the people that he's been anointed to serve as their king. Uh, but the author shifts focus in uh, chapter 28, verse 3, over to Saul, and in fact skips forward a bit in time. So the events of chapter 28, beginning of verse 3, take place after the events of chapter 29. So it's a little bit confusing. It kind of jumps forward, and then chapter 29 will jump back. But what we're seeing here is a very clear, uh, parallel is not the right word, a contrast between David and Saul. They both have their own dilemmas, and they handle them in, uh, in their own ways, and God will respond to David's dilemma and to Saul's dilemma in very different ways. And so we left David in sort of this cliffhanger, how is he going to get out of this mess? And now we skip ahead uh, to, to see Saul's predicament on the eve of battle with the Philistines. So the Philistine army is now all uh, gathered and they've marched forward. They've actually moved up. We know that in the beginning uh, in verse 3, we find out that they are, or excuse me, verse 4, that they are at Shunem, which means they've progressed. So there's been movement on the part of the Philistine army and they are about to attack. So we find Saul on the eve of battle here in chapter 28. And Saul is so desperate for guidance and help and so terrified of the threat that's before him that he will dabble in the occult to try to find answers. Now with Halloween occurring this week where many in our neighborhoods will dress up like ghosts and goblins and otherwise celebrate things associated with witchcraft and the occult, it's a strange bit of providence that our journey through 1 Samuel finds us at the cave of the witch of Endor today. Uh, do with that what you will, but I didn't plan it that way. Uh, so here we are uh, with uh, Saul and the witch of Endor in chapter 28, and it's a very strange uh, and troubling story. So we begin with a little bit of necessary background. Uh, verse 3 tells us two facts just that we need to have in mind as the story unfolds. Look at verse 3 of chapter 28. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, which we knew. We learned that in 25 verse 1. He's just reminding us for context. There's no more Samuel. Samuel is not accessible to Saul anymore. Part 2 is the next part of that verse. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. So, of course, you're going, what's a medium? What's a necromancer? Those are kind of weird words. So, a medium was one who claimed to conjure the spirits of the dead, to actually summon up the spirits of dead people, uh, and, and, and um, probably using something like ventriloquism, honestly, to deceive gullible clients into thinking that they were really hearing from their deceased loved one. 
and necromancers, that word means knowing one, they claim to have special knowledge about perhaps the future, things that are going to happen through access to the spirits of the dead. So they wouldn't necessarily bring up a dead person, supposedly, in the presence of a client, but they would say, I have had access to the, to the dead, and therefore I know that this is going to happen, right? And so uh, people would go to them for guidance on what's going to happen and how they might make decisions uh, in light of those things. Uh, and all of that kind of falls under the category of divination, a big word uh, that the Bible uses a lot in the Old Testament, divination. Divination was common in these ancient Near Eastern cultures. So the, the nations surrounding Israel, this was common. People did this all the time. But Israel seems to be the only nation where it was actually forbidden. And in fact, it was forbidden uh, to the point of death. So there, there, it's, it's in, in the law of God in Leviticus 19, uh, in Leviticus 20, and repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 12, those who practice divination and those who seek out mediums and necromancers and those kind of things are punishable by death. It is a crime. It is not uh, to be tolerated among the people of God. And God felt very seriously and strongly about that. Now, at some point... In Saul's uh, kingship, he had banned divination and, and expelled mediums and necromancers from the kingdom. So somewhere along the way, and we're not told exactly when it was, uh, somewhere during his reign, he had obeyed the law of God and made that illegal and kicked out all of the mediums and necromancers. And so they were living somewhere outside of Israel, and if they were practicing their divination, they were doing it uh, sort of outside the camp uh, and obviously not under the, the support of God or his people. Um, it's worth noting here that uh, these, these practices were, were outlawed, and, and God uh, punished them so severely, not, just because, not because they don't work well, or because it's a scam and misleads people, but because it's, it's evil. It is absolutely wicked. Dale Ralph Davis says it very plainly. Scripture describes these practices not as feudal, but as pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means not because they do not work, but because they are wicked. And it is that simple. If you go to someone who claims to have access to the dead and you're trying to seek special knowledge, whatever power is behind it is not of God. Whatever power is behind it is demonic. It could be that a good bit of it was, was just trickery you know, and, and deception. But to the extent that it actually occurred or actually was successful, it was empowered by Satan and not by the Lord. So it is, it is wicked, and that is why God outlaws it. But his commitment, Saul's commitment to God's law in this case, as in most other issues, proves short-lived. Uh, and he's now actually going to violate his own application of God's law and seek out a medium for himself. Now, so the fact that it starts with this mention of Samuel's death and the, the mediums and necromancers having been kicked out of the land seemed to be uh, to show the desperation of Saul to receive some kind of help, some kind of guidance. He's on the eve of probably the biggest battle of his life with the Philistine army, and he has nowhere to turn. Samuel is gone, so he cannot go consult God's prophet. And as we'll learn from Saul's own words, God is uh, mysteriously silent, and so he is desperate. And so we learn here, 
Samuel's gone, and the mediums are not in the land anymore. So that is necessary context for understanding how this story is going to play out. In Saul's mind, the only hope of a word of direction is from a medium or necromancer, and they've been cast out of the kingdom and forbidden by God. It is probably worth noting at this point as well that thing, that practices like this are still present in the world today. They're not as common where we live, although you will see from time to time uh, things like you know tarot card readers and fortune tellers and psychics and things like that. You'll, you'll pass businesses on the side of the road that, uh, that advertise that kind of service. But in certain parts of the world, maybe less developed places of the world, there are people who rely very heavily on witch doctors and summoning spirits and all manner of very wicked things that are demonically empowered. And so it is, it is in places in the world, maybe beyond our little bubble where we live, this is still very much uh, a, a troubling uh, and wicked presence in uh, cultures. You might be inclined, when you think of those businesses and the, the, the things, the expressions of divination around where we live, you might be inclined to just think of them as hoaxes, right? They're just uh, op- some opportunistic scam that preys on people's fears and superstitions. Uh, and that's probably true of many, perhaps even most of them uh, at some level. But on another level, there is a demonic power behind these practices, And those who seek out such guidance are treading in very dangerous territory. God forbade Old Testament Israel from pursuing guidance by diviners and necromancers, and there's no reason to think that it's suddenly acceptable for God's people today. And I would lump into that category things like horoscopes and anything that sort of relies on a strange interpretation of the the world or the dead. uh, All of those things fall into that category. We should shun these wicked practices and pray for those who are ensnared by the devil in their use. Incidentally, Lindsay told me this week that there was one of those, one of these psychic businesses in Parkville that she had driven past a number of times. And I'm not very observant, so I just don't notice stuff like that. But she told me that, that multiple times she had driven past this business, and every time she drove past it, she would pray, God, shut them down. Right? She would pray for the people who worked there and pray that their business would not be successful and that there would be truth. And uh, she told me that she noticed recently, she drove by, that there was a sign in the window that said for sale or lease or something like that. She was like, yes, he did it. He got rid of it. Uh, God answered her prayers. So it's still around, even in our own, uh, in our own community. And so it's, it's a, dangerous, uh, a dangerous practice. Let's tell the story. So we've got the context now that Samuel is dead and Saul has kicked out all of the diviners, the necromancers, mediums from the kingdom. And then we have the additional uh, details in verses 4 to 6. Here is Saul's bad situation. All right, Here's what, it, where, what he's facing. Look at verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of Yahweh... Yahweh did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Pause. So there's the situation, right? The Philistines are approaching, they're encamped, and they're ready for battle. And Saul has nowhere to turn. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord doesn't answer him. The Lord is silent. 
Saul is terrified by the overwhelming Philistine force. And when he approaches God for help, God will not answer him. Why? Because God has already rejected him as king. Saul has made his, uh, his opinion and his belief in God and his word and the necessity of following God's ways very clear. Saul has been so negligent and disinterested in God and his ways for so long that God, in chapter 15, rejected him as king. Don't forget back in chapter 22 that Saul actually killed all of the priests in the city of Nob, right? So Saul is no friend of God at this point. He has made himself an enemy of Yahweh, and so it should not surprise us that now that he's feeling desperate and looking for help, and he goes, hey, God, will you help me now? God's not too quick to answer him. And that is the situation that Saul finds himself in. And it says, uh, it, it gives us three ways that he is attempted to hear from God, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So these are basically the, the, the ways at that time in which God might, may have communicated his will uh, to, to his people. So a dream or a vision, God could communicate something uh, in that way. Uh, Urim is a reference to Urim and Thummim, which we don't know a whole lot about that, but that is a way that the priests of God would, uh, maybe something like the casting of lots or something, and they would trust that God and his providence would, would give the answer. So they'd ask a question, probably a yes or no type question. Should we go into battle with the Philistines and then do whatever they do? I don't, not, they're not tossing dice exactly, but something like that. And based on that, they would trust, okay, God says, no, don't go into battle. Or yes, do go into battle. And that was a means that God had, had actually approved at times to, to speak uh, his will to his people by the use of the, the priests. Uh, but of course, Saul's killed all the priests. He doesn't really have priests hanging out with him anymore. And the prophet, of course, Saul being the chief of those, pro Samuel being the chief of those prophets is dead. And the other prophets that we know of are with David and his people. So Saul has no uh, avenue of reaching God, if you will. Uh, Saul has no way to hear from God. And so he's desperate and he's asking God for help. And God is not going to answer. He has utterly turned his back on Saul. Perhaps the most tragic statement of Saul's downfall and rejection as king so much promise at the beginning, right? Such resources of divine aid and wisdom, and he was so strong and so ready to go into battle, and it is all so utterly squandered to the point that when he's desperate for a word from God, it is nowhere to be found. That is tragic and terrifying. I need help, I need guidance, and God cannot be reached. That is a terrifying place to live, and that is where Saul is at this moment. So that's Saul's bad situation. And now Saul has a really bad idea. Look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, 
No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Pause right there. So Saul seeks out a medium who is practicing illegally outside the territory of Israel. And he goes to her secretly, of course. He disguises himself, trying to escape the notice of the Philistines and his own troops, and disguising himself from the medium, because he doesn't want to be recognized as the king, right, when he goes to this medium. So he, he takes off his priestly, uh, excuse me, his kingly garments and puts on some kind of disguise and goes by night uh, to uh, Endor to meet with this medium. Endor is located northeast of Shunem, where the Philistines are gathered, so Saul has to travel about six miles through enemy-controlled territory to get to this medium. This is desperation. He deceives the medium by his disguise, right, uh, insisting that she'll be safe even though Saul has banished her from the kingdom, right? So she says, you know, what, you know, what are you doing? You know that Saul has, uh, has outlawed all of uh, the, the diviners and, and kicked us all out of the kingdom, and so Saul assures her, you'll, you'll not be punished for this. But notice how he does that. In verse 10, he swore to her by the Lord, by Yahweh. As Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He is completely clueless. This reveals just the depth of, 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 of foolishness and distance from God. That he is willing to invoke the name of God in assuring the protection of someone who is practicing something that God himself has declared an abomination and is wicked and is forbidden. He says, don't worry, as God lives, nothing will happen to you. First of all, Saul doesn't have the authority to say that. Couldn't God punish this woman for practicing divination if he chose to? Of course he could. But nevertheless, Saul is clueless enough and tone deaf enough about the ways of God to invoke God's name in assuring protection to this medium. Nothing will happen to you as Yahweh lives. And so she seems to be uh, assured by that. And so she says, who do you want me to bring up for you? And so he says, bring up Samuel. And then she summons Samuel, and we're not given a description of how that happens. Uh, I think the author probably perhaps doesn't want us to know uh, the, the details of this wicked practice. Maybe he doesn't want any uh, uh, up-and-coming necromancer to accidentally get some tips on how to, how to summon somebody. So he doesn't tell us at all how it happens, right? He just says when uh, she saw Samuel. Uh, we're not given a description of it. But she becomes, A, she becomes immediately aware that her customer is Saul. We're not exactly sure how she makes that connection. Perhaps she's already kind of 
suspected that this is somebody, at least an agent of Saul, who's, who's come to her in such secrecy. Uh, but when she sees Samuel, she immediately knows that it's, uh, that it's Saul. And so she, she challenges him, why did you deceive me? You are Saul. And she probably assumes that uh, she's been the victim of some kind of an undercover sting, right? Like, uh, like the detective who coaxes a dealer into selling him drugs, and then when the deal is done, he slaps the cuffs on him and says, all right, you're going downtown, right? It's, she probably thinks, oh, no, I'm busted, right? The king has caught me practicing divination. And at this point, he, sa- he says, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. What do you see? Right? So he's, he's, he's just like, let's, let's just not end this thing. Let's just keep going. Let's, uh, let's see what happens. And so she reports what she sees, and she describes something like a god coming up from the earth. Um, this is probably just like kind of her. She doesn't really understand necessarily what she's seeing. So some, perhaps the, you know, the appearance of the spirit was you know, glowing or something. So it's hard to say. that We don't know a lot of details there. She says something like a god coming up from the earth. And then she describes an old man wearing a robe, which that would describe Samuel pretty well. He had this robe that he uh, customarily wore. In fact, it was the robe that Saul reached out to grab and tore a chunk of it away back in chapter 15 when Samuel said, the kingdom has been torn from you, right? Just like you've torn this robe. So this old man in a robe, and Saul knows immediately that it is Samuel. And he does the religious thing. He bows, he pays homage, he shows his respect to Samuel as God's prophet, right? And, uh, and there, there we have it. So he's gone to this medium. He said, bring up Samuel. And she sees what appears to be Samuel. Let's look at what Samuel's bad news is. And then we'll talk about that as we go. So look at verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. So Samuel's first line upon being summoned is identical to the Cave of Wonders in Aladdin. Who disturbs my slumber? Right? I can't help but think about that. So what, what are you doing? Why are you bringing me up? Why are you talking to me? And you're, all, you're immediately met with the question, is this really Samuel? Like, because this medium is, what are, is she really summoning up Samuel? Or is this some demonic deception or whatever? I think that this is truly the spirit of Samuel. 
as I've looked and, and, and thought through this passage, there's no indication in the text that it's anyone other than Samuel. Uh, while we may be inclined to assume this is some demonic sort of uh, projection or deception and not actually the spirit of Samuel, we have good reason to believe that in this unique case, God permitted this seance, this summoning up of a spirit, so that Saul would actually hear from Samuel. And I see four reasons to think that. Number one, the medium seems shocked that it actually worked. You see that? As soon as she saw Samuel, it says she, shri- she cried out with a loud voice. And said, why have you deceived me? You are Saul, right? So it's like when, Saul, when Samuel actually appears, she's terrified. You get the impression that maybe more often than not, what she's doing is sort of fake. This sort of like just smoke and mirrors and just making people, you know, believe that something's really happened. So when, when Samuel actually appears, she doesn't know what to do with this. Ah, this is not me. I am not doing this. This has nothing to do with what I just did. Because what I, just, what I do doesn't actually work. You get the sense that perhaps she's surprised that it seems to have worked. Secondly, the text presents this as Samuel and not as an imposter. It doesn't say the spirit, you know, masquerading as Samuel, whatever. It says, and then Samuel said, you know, it just plainly addresses him as Samuel, refers to him as Samuel. Thirdly, Samuel's message, what he has to say to Saul, is identical to his previous statements to Saul really simply reiterating God's rejection of him as king and uh, as judgment for his disobedience, right? God's doing to you what he spoke to you by me all that time ago, right? Of course he's not going to answer you because he's rejected you because of your disobedience to him. And then fourthly, he makes a prediction concerning the fate of Saul and his sons that will ultimately prove accurate. And so for all of those reasons, it it seems that the best understanding of what's going on here is Saul is really talking to Samuel, the the, the departed departed spirit of Samuel that God has sort of just in this occasion allowed to interact with Saul. And it's strange and a little unsettling, but that seems to be the case. Uh, Saul indicates to Samuel his desperation, since he always refused to answer him, right? God won't talk to me. God won't help me. I've tried everything. I've tried to have, I've asked for dreams and I can't find a prophet to talk to, right? And he, he is utterly silent and turned his back on me. And Samuel basically says, if God won't help you, I won't help you either, right? Why have you turned to me? If God's made himself your enemy, not much I can do about that is kind of what Samuel seems to be saying, which is a good reminder to us of Samuel's faithfulness as a prophet. I've missed Samuel, haven't you? He's been off the scene for a while, and it's been a long time since we've had just a faithful, clear word from God to his people. And Samuel was so uh, uh, diligent at that. He would only speak what Yahweh had given him to speak. We read back in chapter 3, verse 19, as Samuel was beginning his prophetic ministry, that the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. The reason for the strength and success of Samuel's words is that they were God's words. If Yahweh won't speak to you, he won't speak to you through me either. I'm not adding to what God has or has not said, right? So Samuel continues by reminding Saul of his disobedience in the matter of Amalek back in chapter 15 and Yahweh's subsequent rejection of him and the promise that the kingdom would be given to a neighbor. Although here, Samuel adds the detail of who the neighbor is, right? The kingdom would be given to your neighbor, David. 
Back in chapter 15, he said that the kingdom would be given to a neighbor who is better than you. And at that time, we, David had not even yet been anointed. So it was unknown even to Samuel back then. Well, now Samuel knows, right? And so he says, it's, the kingdom has been given to your neighbor, David. As Samuel reminds Saul of his rebuke at that time, it would be wise for us, I think, to notice a parallel there as well. In chapter 15, verses 22 and 30, 33, when, when Samuel was uh, reporting God's rejection of Saul, he said to him, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And then he said this, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So he judged Saul for his rebellion, his disobedience, and he said that rebellion is like the sin of divination, which we maybe didn't fully understand at the time. What a strange, sad irony that the rebellion of Saul, which was the reason for his rejection by God, is compared in chapter 15 to divination. And now we see Saul quite literally turning to the forbidden practice of divination and thereby hearing once again from Samuel's mouth the very same words of judgment and rejection. So he is desperate for help and he's gone to an illegal, outlawed, forbidden source of guidance to get it and he thinks if I can just get Samuel, Samuel will tell me what to do and finally actually by some crazy act of God, here is Samuel speaking to Saul and he isn't going to help him. I'm not going to help you. God's rejected you. He rejected you as king. And in fact, he actually goes far enough to deliver a bit of new information, a new revelation to Saul, and it is not pleasant or affirming in any way. The Lord will give Israel into the hands of the Philistines, and you and your sons will fall in battle, essentially, right? Where he says, you, you, if you're talking to a ghost, you don't really want to hear him say, I'll see you and your kids real soon. And that's essentially what happens, right? So Samuel says, you're going to be with me tomorrow. Time is short. Time is run out on Saul. Now that phrase, that you will be with me, was probably simply a foretelling of his death. Um, what we know of Saul and his rejection of Yahweh's word uh, and ways makes it difficult to take Samuel's word here as some promise of like Saul being you know, forgiven and, and, in, and given eternal life with God, with Samuel, etc. So we probably shouldn't read like you'll be with me to mean like, oh wow, there's this merciful promise of, uh, of restoration. It's probably more just the sense of you will be with me as in where dead people are. You will die, I think is what he's delivering here. And Saul is understandably distraught by Samuel's message. He has been perhaps kneeling as he's heard from Samuel, and at this point he collapses full length, face down on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him. We're also told that he hasn't eaten anything, perhaps in preparation for this seance, this ceremony. Maybe he wasn't supposed to eat anything. Uh, maybe just because of his own anxiety and fear. He just has been distracted and hasn't eaten. Nevertheless, he is terrified and he's without strength and he just collapses on the ground. Let's look at the, how the story ends here in verse 21 and following. The woman, that's the medium, came to Saul and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, 
Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. So the medium takes pity on Saul uh, in his weakened condition and offers him food. At first, Saul refuses, but his servants assist, so eventually he, he takes the food. Now, no, this is no quick, like, run to the uh, pantry and grab a snack kind of a thing. She had to kill a cow and, like, butcher it and cook it and prepare it and bake bread. So this is a, a lengthy process and a full meal. Like, she provides for, Sa- for Saul and his men a, a hearty meal here. But because it takes the time of all the preparation of the meal, Saul has plenty of time to just sit and stew about what he's just heard, this devastating report. So he eats, and they return to the armies at Gilboa to face the fate that he knows awaits him the next day. And that is how this story ends. And then chapter 29 jumps back to David, back before, right, where, what's, what's going to happen with David. So this is a strange episode. It, it's troubling uh, in, in a number of ways, but I think there's, there's some things that we can pull from this for our own lives. So let me, let me give you three uh, sort of applications of, of, of the truths that, that we see uh, in this story. Number one, we learn of the foolishness of ignoring the word of God. The foolishness of ignoring the word of God. Saul consistently throughout his kingship disregarded and neglected God's commands through the prophet Samuel and stubbornly followed his own heart into error and disobedience. And eventually God's patience ran out and he was rejected. Here is Saul desperate for help and pleading for divine guidance and God will not answer. If you disregard the voice of God, the word of God, long enough, you may just find that God stops speaking. And that's terrifying. Proverbs 1, 24-26 gives this warning. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Friends, any especially anyone here who has not repented of his sins and trusted Christ for salvation, heed this merciful warning from the mouth of God. If you turn your back on God and reject his word, he will turn his back on you. Don't ignore 
the Word of God. Don't ignore the gospel call to repent and believe and turn to Christ. God gives the opposite promise to those who will hold uh, his words in high regard. And in fact, just one verse before what I just read. So Proverbs 1.23, it says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. If you turn at my reproof, what does that mean? When God corrects you, when God humbles you, when God convicts you by the Holy Spirit, by his word, by a brother or sister in Christ who comes to you with a challenge or an exhortation, if you turn at reproof, you hear, you receive, you respond with humility, you grow, guess what? God says, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. If you respond in faith and humility and obedience to God's word, he'll give you more. That's the way that he is. But if we reject it, if we neglect it, if we ignore God's word, he will simply stop giving it to us. So it is foolish to ignore the word of God, and that's what Saul has done time and time again, and that's why he finds himself in this most pitiful and desperate situation. The worst, biggest battle of his life the next day, desperate for guidance, and God won't talk. Don't ignore the word of God. Second application. I think we learn here the danger of external religion. And I should say maybe of merely external religion. I'm not anti-religion like some people are. I think that Christianity in many ways is a religion. So I'm not saying religion is bad. But I am saying what we see in Saul is this sort of like surface level commitment to the outward acts or forms of religious adherence he obeys somewhat in the in the outer ways at least that seem to others like Saul is doing the right thing and and throughout this book we've seen that this is how he is he is a textbook case of someone who at least at times adheres to outward forms of religious obedience but whose heart is untouched by God's grace he is utterly disconnected and clueless about God as, and his character and his ways and disinterested in his word. He, rendle, he renders partial obedience and even with great sounding religious excuses for why he didn't obey or change the plan. Well, the only reason I kept these alive is because I was going to sacrifice them to God. Well, that sounds very holy, right? So he, he, he renders partial obedience. He gives lip service to God's prophet, right? And we see him in this passage, like bowing down and paying homage to Samuel because that's the religious thing to do, right? He enforces God's law in some ways, right? Concerning divination in the land, right? He's kicked them out. That was faithful to God's word. But we see that his faithfulness to that law is only, only goes as far as it's convenient to Saul. So when he finds himself in need, he doesn't have much of a problem disobeying his own law and really the law of God. All the while, his heart is cold toward God and indifferent to his word. When he's in trouble, he is desperate for guidance, but he has little interest in knowing the guide. You just don't get a sense from Saul in any way that he wants to know God, that he wants to be faithful to God, that he wants to serve God. He just, he at least wants to appear to others 
that he's holy, that he's righteous. But he doesn't seem interested at all in actually knowing God. And so I think we, there's a cautionary tale here for us. It can be very easy to fall into the trap of sort of the external trappings of Christian religion without the heart of it. We can go to church. We can give money. We can be kind to people. You know, you can do all manner of things, serving in your community or whatever, that like conform to the shape of Christianity. All the while, your heart is disinterested in God. You don't care about his word or his ways. Let us be careful not to pursue the Lord's gifts without first seeking the heart of the giver. Let's not pursue the Lord's guidance without first seeking the will of the guide. How do you want me to live is a more important question. What do I do in this situation? I need help right now. And that's what we see from Saul. So the danger of merely external religion. Let's, let's pursue God with our hearts and not merely give him some outward conformity that looks like obedience. And finally, I think we see here the futility of attempting to save yourself. The futility of attempting to save yourself. In, in a way, this chapter is the story of Saul frantically trying to make his own way of salvation. Right? He's, got, he's in trouble. His enemies are pressing in. And he can't find help in the normal sort of uh, avenues. And so he stoops to incredible depths to find a way out of his predicament. And it proves disastrous. Utterly disastrous. Friends, how often have we tried to make our own way of salvation, just like Saul? How often have we relied on our own strength or ingenuity to escape our troubles and defeat our enemies to no avail? In God's wisdom and mercy, there's only one means of salvation, and it's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We weren't facing a swelling Philistine army on the march but the devastating wrath of God against our sin and unrighteousness. And no amount of sincere effort or external religion could ever rescue us from that plight. Try as we may, we could not rescue ourselves from that predicament. Let me read to you the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what God has done for us in our predicament. Enslaved to sin, under the just wrath and condemnation of God because of our rebellion, God sent his son. Born of woman, born under the law, that we might be adopted as sons. And so Jesus provides the only viable pathway out of danger and into God's arms. And the key ingredients in that, by the way, the ones that Saul was missing entirely, are repentance and faith. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. 
That's the gospel call. If you will come to God acknowledging your sin and rebellion before him and that you deserve his wrath and you turn in faith to Christ and you recognize his life and death and resurrection as the only possible means of escape, then you rest your life in faith in him. God saves. God redeems. God restores. He forgives. He adopts. Welcomes us into his family. We find Saul utterly devoid of repentance. He had opportunities here, right? When he was looking for guidance, God won't give me a dream. I can't find a prophet to talk to. I can't find a priest to ask about the Urim and Thummim. Didn't Saul have an opportunity here to go to God and say, man, I have messed up, and get real about his own sin and failure and rebellion and brokenness? But that's not what we see. We don't see him get serious at all about his sin. We just see him desperately pulling at straws to find some way out of this mess. Maybe Samuel can help me. And Samuel just reminds him, if God's turned his back on you, then I can't help you either. So the call to us, I think, in, by contrast to what we see in Saul, is to mindfully acknowledge our sin before God and to turn to him in faith, recognizing Christ is the only way out of this. Christ is the only escape that I have. And it is a sure and steady escape. So friends, let's place our hope day by day in the sacrifice provided by Jesus on our behalf and find ourselves resting in his strong care. Let's pray.